Good to be here. Uh, last week I attempted to say a few things about our cultural moment uh, through the lens of the parable of the Good Samaritan. And um, the lawyer, if you're not familiar with this, this story that Jesus told, Jesus told these stories that would basically sort of stick. A lot of times propositional realities and information teaching in that way can kind of like lose its grip in your brain. Your brain has a sort of capacity to process stories in a way that holds on to them a little more securely than just information. So Jesus would give his teachings in, in the content of these stories that people would just walk around with and talk about and, and rehash and have conversations. Well, what did he mean by this? And who's this character identifying with? And where do I identify in the story? And that's where learning really gets good, is when you yourself take a teaching and begin to integrate, where am I in the story? Where am I in the text? Where does my life come against this? And what does this text mean about my characterization as I'm living through this story that Jesus told? And so this lawyer comes up and wants to know who is my neighbor. And I think that's an interesting question, but Jesus wants us to know, I think in light of the gospel, what the parable of the Good Samaritan does is he takes the question, who is my neighbor, and almost twists it in such a way that you're left really my take with this question, who isn't my neighbor? I think that's really the gift of this parable, especially as we're walking the world, encountering so much, whether it's on the media or whether it's people actually tangibly in your life that you work with, asking the question, who isn't my neighbor in the world? And what does that mean in light of the gospel? What kind of implications does that question carry? And so this week was another exceptionally heavy week in the world. Between 84 deaths at the hands of a terrorist driver who, like a July winter snow, plowed down innocent bystanders celebrating, to hundreds of deaths in Turkey at the hands of a coup d'etat, this has been a really heavy summer. Bizarre, I would say, in fact. Let me just pull up a screenshot. This was CNN, just one of the many news sources that I know many of us look at, whether it's CNN or whatever news source you're looking at. It was all, almost all the same across the board. In terms of what I want you to notice here, like let's just take number one here in the middle. After you, you see the Nice attack there, right next to a, a, a picture of Donald Trump with his entire family posing for a photo. And then you go up to the top and the banner is the Turkish president basically is, uh, is, is releasing law enforcement to sort of like control the situation of what's happening with a coup d'etat in his country. And then you go down and you see the quiz you can take about the truth about Dick Cheney's dog, right? Do you understand sort of the contrasting themes that are emerging here? Let's not stop there. You can go over here about the 10 strategies to sort of build your Pokemon thing up, right? And where there's a gym and you can go sort of beef up there. All the way down to uh, the reality of a 300-pound mall robot runs over a toddler. What? I mean, you look at any screenshot of any media source today. In the contrasting sort of polarization of storylines in the world, it could not be more disparate more contrasting, more fundamentally different than you could ever imagine. It's just a bizarre time, I feel like, in this generation. The strangest contrasting cultural moment that I can remember. I mean, half of the country is in a race war, while the other half is chasing Pokemon. That's sort of the moment that we found ourselves in this week. 
and, and this isn't a statement about politics. Let me just play neutral here. But what we're noticing, the trends, if you'll look at the ideological trends of what's happening in our time, from 1994, the majority of Americans were moderate conservatives or moderate liberals. And you fast forward the real 20 years and what the data is showing, and I can show this to you if you want actual data on it. What the data is showing is that the majority of Americans sort of fit somewhere in the middle on the left or the right politically. In the last 20 years, almost most of the data, most Americans are shifting to extreme right or extreme left, leaving an evaporation of moderation in the middle. And I'm not saying we should be moderates. I'm not saying we should be right. I'm not saying we should be left. I'm saying that's what is. And what's happening today is an ideological moment where the further out the right go, the further out the left go. And then the further out the left go, the further out the right go. And it's counteracting one another. We're sort of in this hall of mirrors, this sort of ideological trend. And if the trend continues over the next 20 years, you know what it eventually leads to? It's called revolution. Because there is so much polarization, there is no compromise, nothing can actually get done, and everybody hangs on to their ideology. That's the cultural moment that we're in. And I think the politics sort of speak into the sociology, it speaks into the emotional bandwidth, it speaks into the psyche of a, of a city, of a place, of a region. And I just want us to understand the contrasting moment that is happening for us. That no matter where you stand psychologically, socially, economically, that's not, I'm not getting into that as to what's right, what's right. That, like that's not the agenda of preaching. But I will say that's the sort of moment that we're in. And that matters. We should pay attention to that because that has all sorts of underpinnings with it. So which is why I think the parable we're going to look at this morning, I think is relevant because we look at these contrasting images that Jesus will tell in this parable, what are called wheat and weeds, things that really have nothing to do with one another. In fact, things that sort of compete in certain ways, the wheat in the weeds, opposing, contrasting images. So here we go, Matthew 13. Are we ready to get into the text, to bring ourselves to it? Where are we in the story? Here we go, Matthew 13, 24. I'm glad three of you are with me. <laughs> he put before them another parable. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to someone who sowed good seed in his field. But while everybody was asleep, an enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat. And then went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared as well. And the slaves of the householder came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your fields? Where then did these weeds come from? And he answered, An enemy has done this. The slave said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he replied, No. For in gathering the weeds, you will uproot the wheat along with them. Let both of them grow together until the harvest. And at the harvest time, I will tell the reapers, collect the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. Gather the wheat to my barn. Let's pray. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, take these texts recorded so many years ago and make them alive in our hearts and our minds and in our hands today. In your name, amen you back to April 13th of this year, uh, and I'm going to use the notes that I originally used a few months ago when I taught this parable. 
And I'll say now what I said then. I don't know what I really have here. I, it's not a sermon. It's more of like some scattered thoughts about this parable. So it's not going to be as clean and organized as I usually am. Um, and it's not that I didn't try to write a sermon months ago when I came across this parable and was teaching it in the community I've pastored for five years in New York. I think the challenge of preaching is you not only have to try to sort out what you believe the scriptures then meant, but you have to critically think through what they now mean. That you have this sort of then meant and what they now mean. And hear me on this. I don't mean that the meaning of scripture changes. What I mean is that the application of any given text can shift and contort and change from one cultural moment to another. Because our belief isn't just that God spoke. Our belief is that God speaks. I think we believe that God wants to say something specifically into our lives today. That, that God's revelation isn't just general and past. It's specific present. If there's anything we know about this mysterious God that is chasing us that we're also invited to chase after, it's that this God never stops eternally existing now. And so this God that is eternally existing is constantly speaking and acting in his presence. And so it would be interesting for us to say, how do we wrestle with the text to find out what the text then meant and now what it will mean for us in our current time. There's all these rich themes in this text of nonviolence, of spiritual warfare. And then you can get into the complexity of opinions and interpretations about the future judgment and what that means or whatever. And so by that Wednesday afternoon when I was slated to preach on this text that Sunday, that following Sunday, I just stopped writing. I sort of got into the text. I started like Monday and Tuesday, I was just fully in it, reading, discerning. And by Wednesday, I was just done. I, I, I literally stopped writing and I said to God, I don't know what you want to say through this text. And by Wednesday night, it became totally clear. So that Wednesday night, by the way, on April 13th, that was a big night. Does anyone remember, sports fans, what happened that night? Anyone? April 13th. Kobe dropped 60 points on his final game with the Lakers. The Warriors set an all-time record for wins in a regular season. Too bad. Too bad, Warriors, as that went along. But the biggest event of the night, which those were huge, the biggest event of the night was something profound happening to my friend and mentor, Ed Gunger. I'll pull his picture up. Pull that first one up, if you will. This is my friend, Ed. Um, Ed is a, a, an amazing, amazing man of God. Ed was to be consecrated as a bishop in this little stream of the Episcopal Church. And so I jumped on a plane to Tulsa, Oklahoma, that Wednesday morning to witness it. And so what happened, what transpired over the course of an hour, is that he went from this to this, where he was robed. And he was given all this symbolism to symbolize the mantle of spiritual authority that was going to be on him as a bishop in this particular vein of the Episcopal Church. And it was, it was interesting. All I can say is that in the course of that hour on that Wednesday night, it was one of the most sacred spaces that I've ever been in. It was, the mystics have a word for this. It's called thin space. Have you ever heard of that term before? 
It's the idea that there are some moments in our life, and perhaps you can identify with this, where it seems like there's no blockages between the ordinary and the extraordinary, the mundane and the profound, where moments of heaven and earth seem to coalesce. This happens a lot even for people that don't believe in God, where you'll have a moment, maybe that's you this morning, where you're like, yeah, I I, I usually don't believe in God, but I've had moments in my life where I've been prone to doubt my disbelief, that maybe, maybe there is something magical happening in the world that, that we're invited into. I've had moments where things just felt thin, right? Where all these scattered fragments of life in one moment seemed to coalesce into this mysterious clarity, and the thing that most people will describe in those sorts of moments is that they're usually not complex. They're usually really simple and really meaningful. And life just for once seems to make sense. And you, it doesn't mean you can explain it. It doesn't mean it's easy. It just means that there's a sort of clarity, this sort of, uh, this sort of moment of eureka that happens where you realize, God is surely in this place. And I don't even know if I believe in God. That sort of a moment. And I feel like I had one of those moments that night. A real moment of breakthrough happened halfway through this consecration service. There was all this rich symbolism happening, which I geek out on that stuff and love the symbolism of that. And then the worship that night, there was just, there was something happening in the room with the Holy Spirit where you just felt the presence of God. There were these beautiful corporate prayers from the ancients that were being said. There was this intercession of the people who had gathered for this consecration, several hundred of us, were just interceding on behalf of the church and over Ed. It was crazy. And, and before he gets robed, what they do is they invite him up and they ask him to lay down prostrate. So all these witnesses there who have flown in from all over. And here is a grown man in his 60s on his face, in the middle of a worship service, just on the ground. And they take this sheet and they put over him, almost like a burial service. Almost like what had happened, your previous call, your previous will, your previous ego, all that stuff, it was great. But that time is shifting into a new call in your life. And so we're crucifying what was, that something new might come out from the dust. That sort of beautiful thing happening, it was crazy. And I just cried and I cried, and I cried, and I could not figure out why. I mean, as far as I know, I have no call to the Episcopal Church to be, like, ordained in that denomination. Like, it wasn't like, oh, I finally find my people. I need to move down. It wasn't that, right? Like, there was none of that going on. I just had this moment where I stopped and just weeping, and I said, oh, God, this is what you're trying to say through this text. This is what you want to say through this parable. It occurred to me that night in Tulsa, Oklahoma, that in the midst of so much weeds in all of the world, 10 feet away was a grain of wheat face down that God was raising up. And the reason he was face down in surrender is because God had captured his heart. That God had captured this man's imagination. And he, he wanted to wield his life into receiving the call that God had on him to be wheat 
in the world. And I realized that Ed became this sort of symbol for me that this is what God has been doing in the lives of human hearts since the foundation of the world. That God has been cultivating wheat among the tragedy of weeds. That this is a parable of hope. I think it's easy to look at this parable and say, ah, the weeds. And I think what God wants to do is invert that and to say, oh, but the wheat. Look what I'm doing. And given our cultural moment, I don't know about you, but I need some hope right now. When I look at the contrasting messages of any media outlet and see the disparate things happening in the world, things all the way from, uh, all the way from, from genocide and racism and murder to entertainment. And, and what I'm noticing in both of these is both lack substance. Both lack any sort of grounding in kingdom reality. I'm looking for anything to grasp onto that gives me hope and identity and some sense of like, can I celebrate something real? And then I read this parable and I think no matter how much violence and greed and oppression and exploitation we might feel all around us, or perhaps that you might even feel in you, that God loves the world, including you and including me. A a critique you might hear today about what's happening in the world, particularly aimed at God, is something like this. In a world where I think many would say, how can God be good? Or how can God be present? Look at all the weeds. I think a response to that might be something like, how can God be anything but good? Anything but present? Because look at all the wheat. If God isn't good or real or present, how do you explain beauty? How do you explain love? How do you explain so much care in the world? So much self-sacrifice? There was a woman who I talked to this morning when they gathered around for prayer before you all arrived about this morning and praying for this service and her mother just passed away. And she said in a passing comment that certainly I caught, I don't know if anyone else did who was praying, she said, I'd be ruined without this church. It's like, well, there's hope. There's something in the midst of a weed. There's some wheat right there. How beautiful that she's found hope in the community. How do you explain that? How do you explain educators? How do you explain homeless shelters? Why 1.5 million nonprofit organizations in this country? Why the invention of hospitals? Why Dorothy Day? Why Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.? If God is present, isn't present, excuse me, how do you explain Shake Shack? Right? Like, how do you account for such goodness? Never forget that Shake Shack is the world's reminder that God has not left the building. A Shake Shack for the synonym, a synonym for the kingdom of God is like double shack stack. That's just part of the reality of the kingdom. I, I, think, I think we run the risk of losing faith because of our over-preoccupation with the weeds happening. 24-hour news cycles. It's just easy to be capsized by despair. But I think Jesus knew this. I think it's one of the reasons, even in the first century, this was happening. I think Jesus knew of our preoccupation with the weeds that would lead us to despair, that would lead us away from hope. Do you remember that moment where Peter's 
literally walking on water, if you can believe it. If you can believe the resurrection of God, surely you can believe this lesser miracle of Peter walking on water. And remember what happens, the waves are all around him and he's walking out to Christ and his eyes are fixed on the hope of Christ. And all of a sudden, what does he do? He begins to sink, not because he lost hope in God, but because he saw the circumstances around him and began to lost hope in himself that he could continue this journey. And he starts to sink. It seems that Christ is constantly trying to recapture our imaginations and say, look, stop, stop engaging the weeds. They're happening. They're coming up all around you. Keep your eye on the wheat. Keep your eye on me. Keep your eye on what I am doing, not on your circumstances in any given moment. That Jesus provided us stories of what the kingdom is like because I think he's desperate to rearrange our minds. And he doesn't want the presence of the weeds to lead us to doubt the story, to distrust where history is headed. And so this parable is meant to restabilize us. I think what this parable teaches us is that God is not as addicted to immediacy to the extent that we are. I mean, we look at things happening in our own lives. We look at things happening in the world and we want solutions now. We want weeds pulled now. We want finalized clarity. Uh, We want beautiful fields in life. We want all of this now. And I think what we have to understand if we're going to be faithful on the journey to Christ over the long road is that God seems to have made peace with the tension in our present age. I don't think it means God's okay with it. Especially when you get to the word, the end of the parable, you realize all things will be put to rights. But there seems to be a peace about what is because God knows where this is all headed, which gives God peace to say, it's all going to work out. Just let the story play. And it seems that God doesn't mind the mess for the time being. And don't get me wrong, there are times of breakthrough in our life. There are times of breakthrough in society. But it seems that God has somehow made peace, that there will be a day when all tension is done done away with. And all of life gets eternally sorted. But for now, God exhibits a kind of patience that I think, if you're like me, I find frankly annoying. Where I'm just like, just fix it. This is terrible. Fix it. You're God. You can do stuff. So how do we do this? How do we join God in this posture? How do we begin to participate in this sort of rhythm? Um, I think it's one word. And it's not like a cool word. And you're not going to be like, oh yeah, that's it. Thank you. And it's the word patience. Not like a trendy word in our time. Not a lot of like media outlets where this is a front page headline. And you know what's peculiar about this word patience? I want to sort of tinker with your perceptions about this word this morning as we close. Um, patience was an invented virtue by the early church. It was not a virtue in any time in human history for the first century. The Greek philosophers, they knew the concept of patience, but it it was never a virtue. Pythagoras, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, Diogenes, none of the great thinkers up until this point perceived virtue as a, patience as a virtue. Patience, patience was for the weak who had no agency. Patience was for people who had no choice. You had to be patient because you didn't have a choice in life. That the masses in antiquity, 
they had to learn patience to cope with systematic or systemic oppression, slavery, exploitation, infanticide, poverty. Listen to this. 65% of the first century was at or below the poverty line. 65%. The majority of human history has felt exploited, has felt poor. I mean, we live in an unprecedented time in our time. And you think about that. You were patient at this time because you didn't have a choice. You had no agency. You had no power. It was a survival strategy. Patience was not a virtue, but it was the first century Christians who chose to be patient. This is unique to the teachings of the New Testament when it's prescribed. You see it all throughout the New Testament, this, commend, this commendment to be patient, right? Number one, because they trusted God as sovereign and would eventually sort it. But number two, because they knew that patience had its own power to work deeply within them for the purpose of transformation. That circumstances were so dire for the first and second century church that many scholars believed that patience wasn't just a virtue. It was the preeminent virtue of the church. That when you came to gather, when you came for prayers, when you came for the sharing of meals, when you came for opera nights, whatever it was, when you, when you showed up as the gathered, gathered body of Christ, you came and you rallied around the fact that we are all doing this patience thing because it's doing a work in us and because we believe God is working all of this out for good somehow. That that was a primary virtue. Cyprian, Justin, Origen, Tertullian, Lactantius, all of the early church theologians, all early theologians in the church proclaimed patience was the highest virtue. To which you might say, well, I thought it was love. Isn't love the greatest virtue? Well, what is love? According to Paul, in 1 Corinthians 13, what's the first word he uses to describe what love is like? He says, love is patient. Now, isn't that interesting? Of all the descriptives, all the descriptives Paul could have used to describe love, the first one that he used in a long list was patience. That's bizarre. It's because they were trying to reinvent this word for the church to embrace and live into it. Ed Gunger became a symbol to me that Wednesday. His consecration for me was the embodiment of this parable. And it's this, that God, despite headlines, loves the world. And among many reasons I could point to, I watched a man 2,000 years removed from the resurrection of Christ bow his face before an audience of people in, in surrender to the lordship of Jesus over his life. That no matter how bleak things may get, no matter how many weeds persist, no matter how despairing the world may seem, there is never a moment in human history where God has ceased to grow new wheat, to provide new breakthrough, or to prepare new hearts to join him in the renewal of all things. So we can say this, that God has not left the world. That God is always gripping hearts, and maybe the Spirit is doing it even right now 
in this room and that God is committed to this amazing story that began in Genesis. That despite the weeds, the wheat still grows. This is a parable of hope in the midst of despair. I want us to stand together, if you will. As we close this morning, friends, this world is a crazy place. But I want to remind you of the words of Jesus when he said, Here in this earth, you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I've overcome the world. In other words, what you're experiencing now is a sort of moment that's going to require patience that all of the weeds that we see, they've already actually in eternity been overcome. The invitation is for us to have hope and to continue and to live into the story. And so this morning, I just simply want to invite you to hope. That's it. I want to invite the Spirit to make those connections in your life, wherever that is. Because I would simply close by saying this. We are ultimately hopeful in life about the future. Because no matter life circumstances from one moment to the next, we are ultimately hopeful about the future. Because in the resurrection of Christ, we have already seen the future. Does that make sense? You do realize that what's happening in the resurrection of Jesus came in the middle of human history so that everyone after that moment could look back like you and me and say, that's my future. Whatever tragedy is happening in Turkey, the future is resurrection. Whatever tragedy is happening in Ferguson, the future is resurrection. Whatever tragedy is happening anywhere in the world, the future is resurrection. So God, give me hope to begin to live into the future right now. We are ultimately hopeful about the future because in the resurrection of Jesus, we've already seen the future. So I pray over you. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, would you send us out as people of peace, as people of hope, as people of resurrected power in the midst of weeds all over this earth. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace.